0: The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. We welcome as our guest today a frequent visitor to these podcasts, St. Augustine of Hippo, the great doctor of grace in North Africa who died in 430 A.D. St. Augustine will speak to us from across the centuries today about obedience, but he does so in the midst of a big dust-up that happened in the Cathedral of Carthage. I posted on the blog recently about the phenomenon of parishes that split with the bishop over some matter, and I was reminded of a dust-up that Augustine of Hippo had with a congregation when he was visiting the city of Carthage at the request of his friend, the bishop Aurelius. It was in January of 404. Aurelius, the bishop of Carthage, had asked Augustine to come to Carthage to preach, uh, probably against the Donatists. As you might remember, Donatists were heretical schismatics uh, who set up a parallel church according to their own lights about correct practices and doctrine and so forth. Aurelius, uh, in his own battle against the Donatists, had given his priests permission to preach And so, remember, it was usually only bishops who would preach in the ancient world, but he told his priests that they could preach. And so Aurelius was probably trying to uh, give them a standard uh, whereby they could could preach. And so Aurelius wrote to Augustine and pressed him into service for a kind of a speaking tour. And uh, so Augustine traveled to Carthage, where he was very well known. He had studied there as a young man, and he was there quite often as a bishop. And he was very famous. So Augustine happens to be in Carthage on the 23rd of January in 404 for the feast of the Spanish martyr St. Vincent. And Augustine describes in the sermon that we are going to hear how the day before there had been a big disturbance in the church. Augustine had gone to a pulpit to preach. Uh, in in his own church, and usually in, in churches, a bishop would sit in a chair and teach with a scroll of Scripture on their lap as they would expound Scripture. Well, here, in this case, what he had done is he had uh, left the usual place where he would preach, and he went down to uh, a pulpit, probably a like a little wooden platform that would raise him up, above the barrier that would exist between the sanctuary area and the uh, the rest of the nave where the congregation would stand. And um, Augustine, uh, you see, he had also a rather weak voice. He tells us at different places in sermons that he has a weak voice, and he, sometimes you can hear him. Uh, the stenographers that he traveled with who wrote down everything that he would say even wrote down his little comments about you know asking people to be quiet because his voice was weak Uh, so that you know he wanted to make sure that people could hear him so uh, augustine goes down to this pulpit and he gets up in this pulpit and then he leaves it again without preaching and apparently this caused just a huge ruckus with all sorts of people really you know, turbulent and so forth. They had, they had come to him. He was famous. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And there was a kerfuffle that, that happened in church, uh, because number one, he didn't preach number two, where he went to give the sermon he didn't actually give. So there was a dispute. Uh, there was, there were some people who, who, when it was time for him to preach, uh left the nave and surged around into the apse because they wanted to get really close and they wanted to hear what he had to say. But instead here goes Augustine down further away from these people who'd surged into the apse where all the clergy was supposed to be, and he went down to the barrier, the shoulder high barrier, and he climbed up in this platform. And um so the people were clamoring for him to move, to go to a different place, and Augustine was trying to get people to fill in some spaces uh, that were left by the movement of the crowd and rather than moving this group he wanted this uh, what happened is that eventually he just got down out of the pulpit even though you know uh, aurelius had him there to preach he just got down without really saying much of anything and that caused a real commotion so uh we're going to hear this sermon um it's a uh a real it's an absolutely fascinating piece um where you can get a, a glimpse, shall we say, of of what it was like, maybe, to be a, sort of uh, in in a church on this in this day back in 404 in Carthage with this dynamic, uh, really active, interactive people, uh, the North Africans, uh, and there are a few things that you can listen for as we go through this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read a good chunk of this sermon. It's it's one of the newly discovered sermons. Uh, there was a, a fellow by the name of Dolbeau who found a whole bunch of brand new servant, sermons in uh, some manuscripts that were stored away in the German city of Mainz. And so these are the what they usually refer to as newly discovered sermons. It's really interesting. That after all these years, we're still finding things. By Augustine, it's absolutely amazing that after all these centuries, we can still discover stuff. But anyway, this is sermon three fifty nine B three fifty nine B, and we'll hear a good chunk of it. I won't read all the way to the end, though. I'll just get us a little bit into his issue about obedience, and I'll leave you hanging. But there are a few things you can listen uh, for. Uh, tune your ears. For his comments about women uh, both women in church and the kinds of things that women had to endure you know it's amazing that some things just really don't change very much um he talks about for example how aurelius had undergone to reorganize the church uh, he wanted to separate the sexes from each other in church and so he arranged for certain groups to enter through certain entrances and so forth. And this work eventually came to solve some problems because people were obedient. Okay, um, you, uh, you tune your ears to uh, Augustine calling his audience things like, you know, your graces or your reverences or your holinesses or something. Well, this is a standard part of Augustine's style. Uh, You might remember that that Augustine says that he is a bishop for the people, but he is still a Christian with the people, and his role is one of service. And so he gives great honor to his congregations, and he describes himself very clearly as their servant, sometimes even uses the word slave. That's the role of the bishop for Augustine. It's it's service. Uh, He talks about their bishop, in Carthage, a lot. He talks about Aurelius, and uh, you know, he's an old friend. He's the chief bishop for the region, and he's uh, you know, he came here in obedience, um, even though he had some other uh, things to do. He was supposed to be at a at a synod of bishops elsewhere, but he begged off that so that he could come to to Aurelius out of a kind of a an obedience, because there was a greater need that had to be served. Um, Just, you know, really keep your your ears tuned to all the human factors in this. You're getting a, a picture, a snapshot of the atmosphere of an ancient church in the early 5th century in North Africa, a place and time of one of the most vibrant and dynamic and influential expressions of Christianity in the history of Holy Church. So now we go back to January of 404. You are in the cathedral in ancient Carthage, and Aurelius the bishop is there, and all the clergy are there, and there are masses of people, probably even twice the number of people that even before, they're all packed in because of the kerfuffle that everyone in the whole city is probably talking about, and time of great controversy, we're having a fight in the, in the church uh, between parallel churches, Catholics and the Donatists, and now Augustine gets into the pulpit and he begins to speak. Conturbatio esternidie itam nostra quam vestra, et procter vos magis nostra quam vestra, silentium fateor imperabat, sed qui domino fratri caritas iubet, cui servire in est? Yesterday's disturbance, for which I was as much to blame as you, more, in fact, because of my responsibility to you, would properly, I admit, be calling for silence today. But because charity, whose slave one has of necessity to be, has brought an order from our master and brother, though there is also evident in you a positive lust for hearing something, which we confidently hope God will be good enough to make fruitful in your good behavior and your obedience, I am going to be your slave in the name of Christ, since I am the slave of Christ whose members you are. This, however, I will confess in God's sight, personally appearing before you and before him, in whose ears my thoughts speak as loudly as words, he it is whom I summon to bear witness upon my soul, that absolutely the only thing which brings me to this city, in order to say something to you as the Lord enables me, is the charity of your bishop. And I don't mean the charity with which I love him, but that rather with which I am aware of being loved by him without the slightest pretense. While it is true, I mean, that you know both of us, you cannot possibly know us in the way we know each other, we who are your slaves to serve you in the love of Christ, because, of course, we also love you too. God knows, as you can see. Nonetheless, dearly beloved, you ought to know I say this in the presence of Christ himself, that if you longed to have me here more than anything else that you long for, and I perceived in your bishop's mind even the slightest disapproval of me, you would never see me here. You see, he thought fit to send me a letter recently, in which he actually said that if I imagined my arrival should be put off for a while, or thought I should weigh the pros and cons of coming or not coming, then I would be offending against the very charity which God is called. Just think of my feebleness launched upon such a long journey in the middle of winter. And here's something else for your graces to bear in mind. The blessed and venerable old man Xanthippus, primate of Numidia, has summoned a council to meet at Constantine on the 28th of January. A council was summoned by the primate of Numidia for the bishops of Numidia, where I, too, am a bishop. In that city of Constantine, what's more, as I rather think your graces know, the bishop is one who is very close to me. That is to say, he was brought up... In THE WORD OF GOD, AND HELD THE OFFICE OF PRESBYTER IN THE TOWN OF TAGASTE, FROM THERE HE WAS GIVEN TO CONSTANTINE AS ITS BISHOP. I CAN'T TELL YOU WITH WHAT SORT OF LETTERS HE TRIED TO INDUCE ME TO VISIT CONSTANTINE. WHEN THE COUNCIL WAS ALSO SUMMONED TO MEET THERE, HE OVERCAME ALL MY DELAYS AND HESITATIONS, AND YET, MY DEAREST FRIENDS, Such a letter then came to little, lowly me, from my lord and brother Aurelius your bishop, that it quite overruled by the weight and seriousness of its contents any previous arrangements I had made, and didn't so much bring me as haul me here, putting all else aside. I reckoned, after all, that if he had seen fit to give me these orders, not merely with such assurance, but with such dire threats coming not from himself but from God, then I could say to myself that if I came here and yielded to his will, or rather through him to God's, then I could quote his letter in excusing myself to my lord the old man Xanthippus for my withdrawal from that other engagement otherwise he might well be indignant at my leaving the council of the numidian bishops where my presence was required by virtue of my very rank as one of them and my choosing to come here instead but where is it all leading to all this i've been saying yesterday my own eyes could see that there was a space which wasn't fully occupied by brothers and sisters close enough both for their ears and my tongue. I wasn't responsible for the decision that the preaching should rather be done from that place. It was just that we could see that those people should give way and come up to where the bishops were, rather than the bishops should give way and go to that other place, which would involve a huge disturbance of the bigger crowd, which had already surged around the apse to make sure of being able to hear. "'Was a much bigger group to be moved from this place to that? "'But fine, perhaps it would be all right to ignore the men. "'What about the weaker sex? "'Can there be any doubt that when the women began to press forward "'in their eagerness to get close, "'they would have made a greater din and raised voices, "'which, above all, according to all the rules of decency, "'should not be heard in church?' So the only thing we were asking was that those few people who were pressing on the altar railings would have the goodness to move up to the spaces next to the place where we were speaking. Was that a very big thing to ask? But that's just what they refused to listen to, and the disturbance followed, and great sadness for me, which God has just now been good enough to relieve by means of the sermon from your venerable bishop. For the rest, though, brothers and sisters, I must urge you not to think it was he who did not give me leave to preach, from the place which some people were so obstinately asking for with their rowdy demands. There you are, then. That's why I've said all this, because if I were to become aware of the slightest little reserve toward me in the heart of my most saintly brother, I would not come to this city, especially with all my other responsibilities weighing heavily upon me. What's the case, after all? Can't your graces recall that I held forth against the party of Donatus from that place inside the altar railings for four days running? Did we wait for you to ask for that? Was it even suggested by me? He of his own accord saw that it should be done, and he did it. This time he saw it shouldn't be done, and he didn't do it. But but perhaps you're saying, What's so great or difficult about what we were asking for? Even if what you were asking for was trifling enough, there's nothing trifling about the obedience we require of you. That, you see, is what I would prefer to speak about. "'because I heard that some brothers were saying, "'Look, he preached himself on the duty of serving the weaker brethren. "'He preached on it one day. "'He failed to do it the next. "'So we should have been served. "'Why did he come down from the pulpit?' "'I will tell your holinesses why I came down. "'He, after all, is the one I should really have to be forgiven by.' seeing that I came down without his instructing me to. In fact, I deliberately came down, without even consulting him, in case he should forbid me to do so. And, of course, if I had consulted him, and he had forbidden me, I wouldn't have been able to do anything now but obey. I would have been obliged not to come down. So I preferred to ask his pardon afterward, for coming down from the pulpit without consulting him or his instructing me to, rather than not do what I thought should be done. Now let me tell you why I thought this should be done. Not only do I know how the people here have always obeyed their bishop when he was present, the whole of Africa knows it, and very possibly the whole world, wherever they have heard of the church of this city, We all know, after all, what dissolute and disorderly goings-on there used to be here between males and females in days gone by, because I myself was part of that blot on the escutcheon. The Lord brought it about through His servant that there should be no mixing of the sexes at vigils. I, as a lad, used to attend vigils when I was a student in this city, And I kept vigils like that, all mixed up together with women, who were subjected to the impudent advances of men, which no doubt on many occasions put the virtue of even chaste people at risk. How honorably now are vigils kept, with what chastity, what holiness. Not even those against whom these careful precautions were directed will be able to vote against them those cheeky fellows themselves, impudently waylaying the chastity of others, can wring their hands over these measures. They cannot possibly fault them. But was this the only measure taken, so that maybe this is the only thing for us to rejoice at now? What about the separate passages and entrances? What care was taken? With what foresight a way was found? With what Firmness was it carried out to ensure that those who would be allotted separate places when they had come in should also come in through separate entrances. This, to prevent those cheeky impudent slaves from beginning as they entered through the narrow passageways, what they would later do their best to finish, from making the remarks with which they are in the habit of embarrassing the ladies as they pass. With what a watchful eye were these things noted, how energetically put a stop to. If we remember the things that used to go on in the church at Mappalia, at the shrine of the blessed bishop and martyr Cyprian, we will still perhaps be wringing our hands over them, while if we forget them we are proving less than grateful to God. Would your graces please join me in calling those things to mind, brothers and sisters? What I am reminding you of is the benefits God has conferred on you through your bishop. Where in those days the din of dirty songs was heard, nowadays it is the singing of hymns that lifts the roof off, where vigils used to be kept in pursuit of licentious gratification, now they are kept in pursuit of holiness. In a word, where God used to be offended, God is now being propitiated. I beg your graces not to forget these things. They are recent and can be compared with the present. They were happening yesterday. Today they are not. When, though, could your bishop ever have brought all this about, if he hadn't had charge of an obedient people. To say something, too, and no small something it is, about your virtue of obedience, if you had not eagerly consented to your bishop as he strove to introduce these reforms, he would never have been able to implement them all. So God's mercy was evident both in the bishop's diligence and in your obedience. So then, knowing all this, how submissive you always used to be, I used to hold you up as an example for others to imitate, and used to say to the tiniest little congregations in the countryside, when they were clamoring against their bishops and opposing them, go and take a look at the people of Carthage. SO THEN, SINCE I USED TO FIND YOUR GOOD EXAMPLE SUCH AN ABUNDANT SOURCE OF JOY, IMAGINE HOW SADDENED I MUST HAVE BEEN YESTERDAY, BROTHERS AND SISTERS, BY YOUR DISOBEDIENCE, AS THOUGH MY COMING HERE SO ASSIDUOUSLY WERE TEACHING YOU HOW TO BE DISOBEDIENT. SO WOULD YOUR GRACES PLEASE LISTEN CAREFULLY, What made me come down from the pulpit was painful disappointed at the wretched effect of my ministry. You were insisting on being able to hear. What could the speaker build up when the listener was threatening to reduce it to ruins? What do you mean, ruins, you say? What was so big after all, In what were we asking— what was so bad about what we were requesting? I'll tell you what I mean by ruins. I'll tell you to put the fear of God in you, not to make you fall. Don't you know that a blazing fire can spring from a mere spark? Don't you know that the tiniest drops fill rivers and sweep away whole farms? Don't let disobedience seem to you just a slight sin. Certainly, I'll tell you straight out, it would have made not the slightest difference whether you listened from here or from there, that there was a space enough near us for a crowd to fill both I knew and you also knew. What did your opposition spring from, your refusal to come over here, but solely and simply from your obstinacy? Either just this happens that we want, or else what you want won't happen. We, I mean to say, wanted you to be able to hear. And what we wanted would benefit everyone. If there were some people, though, who were just lounging against the altar rails, and when we didn't agree to their unreasonable wishes, even they shouted out, Time for dismissals! Look how far away you are, and how calmly, I said, time for dismissals. And there you are, you all heard me, because you were patiently keeping quiet. What if I was wishing to test your obedience now? But how could you test it, says someone or other, in such a slight matter? If you don't obey in a slight matter— Who are you going to obey in a greater one? Haven't you read what the Lord said? Whoever is faithful in a small matter is also faithful in a great one, and whoever is unfaithful in a small matter is also unfaithful in a great one. Do you really want to know what's so bad about disobedience, because I said the listener was threatening ruin? Everything God planted in his paradise was good if everything he made in the whole world was good, with scripture saying, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, if everything, how much more the things too which he set as being even more delightful in paradise. So where everything he had planted was good, what can be the meaning of do not touch this tree? Don't you realize that this is invariably made into a problem by people who cannot see either how good a thing obedience is or how bad a thing disobedience look everything had been planted good don't touch says God why shouldn't I touch did you put something bad here if you did put something bad here take it away and stop forbidding me to touch Don't touch, he repeats, this tree, which of course wouldn't be in paradise unless it were good. Or is this perhaps what you are thinking, that outside paradise God had filled the earth with things that were all good and in paradise had planted one that was bad? In the rest of the earth too, of course. They were all good, but undoubtedly better in paradise. And yet, because among all the good things put in paradise, obedience was better still, God slapped a prohibition order on one of them, or else by not forbidden, forbidding anything, he might have ceased to be master. Really? Someone will probably assume that it was out of haughtiness that God wanted to be master. God's being master is of benefit to those he is the master of, not to God himself. Our ignoring him doesn't make him any smaller, nor our serving him make him any greater. That we are under such a lord and master is to our advantage, not to his. In wanting to be our master, he is wanting it for our benefit, not his own. He stands in no need of any good of ours. We are in need of all His good things, and above all of God Himself, our supreme good. God Himself, you see, is our supreme and best good, than which there can be nothing better. Notice His servant, admitting this, listen to him out of the psalm, I said to the Lord, It is you who are my God, because you have no need of my good things. So God forbade something, in order to impose a commandment, so that he might be served as master, so that obedience might be distinguished from disobedience as virtue from vice. And that tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not because apples were hanging from it, so to say, of good and evil, But the reason it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that if the man were to touch it against the commandment, he would experience in that tree what the difference was between the good of obedience and the evil of disobedience. From that tree, after all, once the commandment was ignored, came death as a consequence. Had the commandment been observed, immortality would have followed so you can see just precisely how bad a thing disobedience is, my brothers and sisters. It was the first ruin of mankind. was St. Augustine of Hippo preaching to a flock in Carthage in 404 A.D. And one of the things I found quite interesting in his sermon is how Augustine makes the transition from talking about uh, the old um, ways of the things were being done and how they improved over time to what happened the day before and then moving in to speak more deeply about obedience and the relationship that we have with God in obeying proper authority. Each of us have a state in life that calls from us obedience to some proper authority. And this is very important for us as individuals, of course, but it's also proper to whole communities you know, every one of us, of course, is going to be judged alone as an individual. But in this life, we are in this veil of tears together with others. We are members of a church. There's a universal church, but then there's a a, a local church, and then there are particular you know, divisions or portions of the people of God, which are parishes, for example. We are to profess... One faith, the faith of Holy Church. Not just any faith, but the faith of Holy Church. We are called on to submit to the church in her authority. And this is an authority, not just any old authority, but this is an authority that was given to Holy Church by God. Parishes and other groups, other communities, religious for example, when they rise up in stark disobedience and turn themselves away either from uh the authority of holy church to teach by embracing or promoting things that are just simply contrary to the teachings of the holy of holy church or uh by their actions you know the authority of jurisdiction and, you know, the things that are are given to, the responsibility given to bishops in order to put the church in good order for the sake of souls, when they place themselves in stark opposition and even go so far as to split off and go and start their own thing without any kind of reference to the bishop. They're placing themselves in real danger and they are causing scandal to others who, by their bad example, might think that what they're doing is okay. They weaken us as a church and they place themselves in spiritual danger and they imperil other souls by their scandalous bad example. We need to do everything that we can to do our best, you know, to foster unity with charity. Not at the expense of truth, not against, you know, the law of the church, not against the church's teachings, not just to go along, to get along. I'm not saying that we should just, you know, defy common sense or anything like compromise truly necessary things, absolutely indispensable things in order to get along. That's not what I'm saying. There are reasonable reasonable limits of authority and there are reasonable expectations and obligations that authority can place on all of us as groups not just as individuals and schism schism is a spiritually dangerous wound to the body of the church and we must do all we can to help heal it even if we have to go way out of our way in order to do so we have to avoid schism and help heal schism wherever we can find it by reasonable means and by charity accompanied by prayer and fasting and almsgiving With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Um, Before I go, I want to thank you for your voicemails. Um, There have been some, uh, you know, little technical problems with getting the voicemails, but I've solved them. And I have had some really nice messages from uh, both lay people and from priests and from from England and from the United States. Uh, Some people have said that they didn't want me to use their voicemails in any of these podcasts, and I will always respect that. I really enjoy hearing where you're from, what you have to say. Uh, one or two of the voicemails have been really very, very touching, and uh, I appreciate uh, the fact that you left them. Um, uh, a couple of voicemails I've tucked away for use in one of these audio projects uh, soon. Uh, you can find the voicemail numbers on the left sidebar of the blog. On the Well, it might be a right sidebar pretty soon, because I'm going through right now a project of uh, overhauling the whole look of the thing. And, you know, changing, the, changing the style of what you see and updating the software and, all and so forth. You'll, you'll see more of that uh, in detail later on. But in the meantime, until I hear from you by voicemail uh, or uh, see your comments in the blog, uh, please do me the kindness of praying for me, as I will for you.